Good morning, church. My name is Josh Willis, and I am the pastor over Ethos Students, which is our middle school through high school ministry. And I am really excited to share this word from Isaiah 55 that God has put on my heart. So go ahead and grab a Bible, turn to Isaiah 55, right in about the middle of your Bible, and let's pray, and we're going to jump in. Jesus, thank you so much for meeting us here this morning. God, I know we're scattered all throughout Nashville and all throughout the states and in our world. We believe that you've been present with us as we are worshiping, as we hear your word, as we gather maybe by ourselves or in spirit through the internet. God, we know that you'll meet us in communion. And right now, I pray that you just settle our hearts. Will you hear what your spirit wants to speak to us, God, through Isaiah 55? Let us eliminate all distractions and receive this word. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So I'm the youngest of four siblings, and my oldest sister, Amy, used to live in Rwanda for a couple of years, and I had the blessing of being able to go visit her a couple of times, which was a, a real joy. And on my second trip back, um, I was flying home alone, and um, I was dropped off at the airport, and as, as soon as I got to the airport, I knew something that was wrong. Um, I walked in, find out that the power was out, and so I asked somebody, and they say, it's been out for a while, they're not sure when it's gonna come back, so. It's like, okay, that's great. I, I wait in a long, confusing line, and I eventually get up to the counter to where you check in your bags, and I hand over my bag, and I notice that they start handwriting my luggage tag. So I start sweating, as I'm thinking about, there's things that I value in that bag that I wanna make sure I have, and I'm getting nervous. And then I notice that they are handwriting it to Nashville, Tennessee. And so the problem with that was, that's my final destination, but I was in Rwanda, I was flying to Entebbe, Uganda, I was flying to Toronto, switching airlines, and then going to Nashville. So as I'm watching this unfold, I am just getting shocked and, and worried to the point that um, I find myself behind the counter, handwriting my own luggage tag, just asking the person to trust me. Because my theory was, if my bag's getting lost for handwriting, I want to make sure that I'm the one writing it. Because I did not trust the airline at all. Um, I, for anyone, because they've mishandled baggage on a printed tag, but let alone a handwritten tag, I was getting nervous. I had no confidence that I was gonna end up with my bag in Toronto when I needed to change airlines. And so I, I get through the process, I, I hop on the plane, and I pray and I fast for 11 hours across the Atlantic. In reality, I actually read the six Harry Potter book on that trip. But as I got there, I broke into spontaneous praise and worship as the spirit fell, and down the conveyor belt came my luggage. I could not believe it. I didn't have any belief that my baggage was gonna arrive, but fortunately, it did. And so this leads me to faithfulness, because faithfulness is a big deal to us. Faithfulness is the concept of unfailing loyalty to someone or something regardless of what the circumstances are. And faithfulness is a universally loved quality and something that we all rely on. So in a relationship such as a marriage, we long to be faithful and we pray that our spouses are faithful. So that we hold, that we, in relationships, we want people to uphold their end of the bargain. Um, when we go to the doctor, we're faithfully relying that that doctor knows enough about the human body to be able to take care of our situation. When we um, check our, la our luggage in um, at an airport, we faithfully rely, hoping that our luggage is gonna make it. And if you're flying to or from Nashville on a weekend, you can faithfully rely that there's gonna be at least one loud bachelorette party on your flight every time. Faithfulness is consistent over time, regardless of what the circumstances are. And you know, faithfulness really stands out in a year like the one that we've just been through, right? 
Every person, every organization on the planet has had something disappointing, something change, something get disrupted. Things that we thought were unmovable have now been moved, and many of us are frustrated, and there's often just kind of this sadness that is thick in the air, and the things that we thought were faithful have been exposed not to be faithful, and to say that it's been a difficult year for us is, is an understatement, right? To be sure, though, we are far from the only people who have ever gone through difficulty. We have got plenty of company. I, fa- I believe that history would say that um, there have been much more worse difficult times to be through than in 2020 in the United States. No matter who you are, we are not alone in difficulty. It's, it's everywhere. In fact, the Bible says that in Genesis 3 is one of the reasons that we have such difficult times that all people in all places will experience difficulty because we have rejected God. And that has broken the world. It's brought about sin and pain and death. And God, but throughout all of this, how God responds to our unfaithfulness is that God responds in faithfulness. To our brokenness, he responds with hope and with healing, meeting us right where we're at every single time. And so to get a picture of that today, we're gonna listen to a Hebrew prophet who's got something hopeful to say about a faithful God to a people who really needed to hear that message in Isaiah 55. And there's a couple of things that we need to be aware of in order to understand what is happening in Isaiah 55 here. The first is that in the Old Testament, God chose a people, Israel, to reveal himself to the entire world. He chose their ancestor Abraham, which is a guy who was honestly pretty unimpressive late into his life. He was living with his father. He didn't own any land. He didn't have any descendants. And God chose him and said, hey, you, I'm gonna make you a great nation. I'm gonna give you land. I'm gonna give you tons of descendants. And I'm gonna bless the entire world through your life. The way that you organize your society, the way that you love each other, the way that you worship, all of this is gonna point people to me. And so I'm gonna ask, and so God says, I'm gonna ask you to love me and love people. And that's that's exactly what they're asked to do. But as all humans do, they struggled with this task. So much so that they squandered and lost their land, they lost their possessions, and they lost um, themselves as they were taken into exile by another nation. And God had made it clear through the prophets that they were in exile because they had failed to adequately love God and they had mistreated the poor. Now in Isaiah 55, the people are at the height of their pain. They've been in exile for 70 years now. They find themselves hopeless, frustrated, and angry. And so what we've been going through this year, imagine that on a a more difficult scale, maybe 50 times harder, stretched out over 70 years, and you'll find yourself in the same hopeless situation that they were feeling. They were the chosen people of God, but everything else in their life pointed to that not being true because of their circumstances. So Isaiah 55 is a word to these people, and we need to understand that as we dive into it. So let's read verses one through five of Isaiah 55. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money on that which is not bread and labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen to diligently to me and eat what is good. Delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live and I will make you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast and my sure love for David. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and a commander to the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, and a nation that you did not know shall run to you. 
because of the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. And so leading up to this section in Isaiah, the prophet had had some really difficult things to say to the people, saying that if you don't change your ways, you're going to end up in exile. And as we just mentioned, they are in exile at this moment. Now this same God that chose them, that they've rejected, comes to them in this moment, in this difficult situation, and he has this beautiful invitation. He says, come, everyone who is thirsty. And the reality is that everybody thirsts, and especially if you are in a helpless and a hopeless place like they were. They don't have a home, they don't have an identity, they don't even have a purpose or a hope right now. They are thirsty for something else. And God offers this, this invitation and he doesn't even ask for any payment, which is good news because they don't have any. He's saying that he doesn't need anything from them. He is fine on his own, but he wants them to come and feast with him. This is a consistent picture of God throughout the entire Bible. And look what God is serving at his feast. He's serving milk. He's serving wine and rich food. And it's important to note here that Isaiah and the other Old Testament writers were thoroughly materialistic. And what I mean by that is that there wasn't a separation in their mind of the created stuff of the world and the spiritual stuff but they saw everything that God created was good and for their enjoyment. They were foods and luxuries provided by God for humanity to enjoy. And enjoying God throughout the scriptures is reg regularly portrayed as this celebratory party, enjoying the best things of the earth alongside God because God wants his people to feast. But what upsets God is when his people keep the feast for themselves at the expense of others. This is why they're in exile, because they they feasted at the expense of their neighbors and they rejected God. Receiving an invitation to a fun party like this would be wonderful at any time you got it, but imagine you're in the situation that they are in. This is God's invitation to people who have rejected him because God is faithful to his word. All they have to do is to come and receive from God. He doesn't want anything other than their attention, and their affection, because this is who God is. He's inviting them to come and to receive. And in verses four and five, the prophet gives other examples of God's faithfulness to their well-known ancestor, David. And the prophet is calling them to look back on their history, to figure out, look, look at how the ways I've been faithful to you. And we don't have time to go through all the implications of these verses here today, but essentially he's saying God has been faithful. Look at what he did for David. David, the same guy who was overlooked by humanity, same guy who had nothing special about him, but God chose him and God was faithful and God made him a mighty king. He's saying that God is not just sometimes faithful, but God is always faithful to do what he's going to say. And so Isaiah continues this thought in verse six as we read. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, and my ways are not your ways, declares the Lord. For the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. And so while there is no payment accepted at the Lord's banquet, God wants people there who want to be there with him. God has no interest in a people who are just waiting on a better offer. Those who seek God will find God at his feast. And in verse seven, we see God asking them to lay down their wicked ways and take up God's way of life. The people must forsake their wicked ways of hoarding their wealth, of ignoring the poor and suppressing the people beneath them. 
These are the actions that put them into exile. But God has another way of doing life, and he's reminding them of their original purpose, to show people what it looks like when God dwells among them. So God's inviting them to forsake their ways that led them to exile and receive compassion, to receive pardon, to receive grace. God is faithfully full of grace. He's in the restoration business, and he is consistently taking care of the messes of the people that come to him. He's saying, come to me and join me at my feast. In verses 8 through 9, God argues that his ways of life and his thoughts are better than our ways of life and the way that we think. And God can back up what he's saying, too. Israel's own path brought them into exile where they currently are and they lost everything. But God's way of life leads to flourishing, meaning, and purpose. But God is not coercive. He's not manipulative. He doesn't have a power play here. He is inviting them and saying, won't you come? Won't you join me? And he's pointing to his faithful track record of a better life. And although humankind, we are made in God's image, we're made out of love, we are fundamentally different from God in this respect. Because we break and we ruin things, but God heals and God redeems things. We place different values upon people, but God views all children as his perfectly beloved kids. God, are we selfishly consumed for our own benefit and God shares his entire wealth with all? We have our own self-interest at heart, but when God makes decisions, he has all of creation and all of humanity in mind. His ways are better than our own. He's trustworthy. He has never been unfaithful. And this is what he continues to argue in verse 10 and 11. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and spout, sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word that, bego, that goes out from my mouth, it shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for that which I sent it. And God is saying that his word is faithful. As the elements such as rain and snow perform the will of God, so does God's word. When he says something, it's gonna happen. There are no exceptions to this. And this is incomprehensible to us because we don't, we don't have an analogy to, to put alongside this faithfulness. Because whatever it is that we count on, if it's someone or something, no matter how reliable, how faithful, when it is set aside next to God, it will fall away in that comparison every single time because God's word accomplishes exactly for the reason that he sent it. He succeeds in everything that he does. And so put yourself here in Israel's shoes for a moment. You're at one of the worst moments in your people's history. You've squandered everything that God's given you, but God still comes to you with this invitation. So you have zero doubts about its authenticity. This is food for the hungry. This is an oasis in the desert. This is a pardon for somebody who is in captivity. But this is the gospel, that God shows up all of the time when we are at our worst and he offers us his best. This is the same God who in all seasons is faithful regardless of what it costs him, regardless of what the circumstances, his invitation is the same because God accepts those who come to him and receive from him. He invites them into a better way, and it doesn't end there either, as we go to verse 12 and 13. For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace. The mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing, and the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress, instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle, and it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. Do you, know what, do you want to know what God dreams about? 
Here and elsewhere, God looks forward to the day when all of creation rejoices in humanity's redemption. Nature here is full of grace, it's full of joy, of peace and thanksgiving, and they're clapping all because of God's work in his people's life. And in verse 13, we're given this poetic reversal of the curse of Genesis 3. I know it seems kind of random that there's thorns and briars here and we don't really understand that, but the Isaiah here is saying, these things were introduced at the fall. One day they won't be here anymore. Well, our sin led to evil and brokenness, but there will be a day where that doesn't exist anymore. He's pointing to the coming kingdom of God that Jesus started and will one day bring in its fullness. And so one of the ways that I see this here and I see this all throughout the Bible and it's a helpful way for me to view the Bible is to see it as a claim about history. When we do this, we see that the Bible has an answer for why sin and evil and death exist and it's because we chose to try to do life on our own without God. God created good and we created evil when we rejected God but it also has an answer for what God is doing about this real problem that we all experience. He came down and he took on flesh. He entered into our story, he showed us another way, and he took on death and sin on the cross. And finally, the Bible claims that all of history will end with Jesus leading the only empire that will be left standing from this earth, and it is the kingdom of God. This is what the kingdom of God looks like. He, he points to it in different parts of scripture, but no joy, I mean, no pain, no separation, no injustice, no evil at all, only harmony among creation because God is dwelling in the midst of it. This is what Jesus' kingdom looks like. This is what the prophet is sharing with the people who are at their worst, one of their worst moments. And he's not just inviting them into something that might work out. This is a promise from God for something that is absolutely going to happen. The people in exile knew this was true because this is a word from God through his prophet Isaiah. They knew that God was, that God is, and that God will be faithful. They had to come and receive. And so as we look at this word, church, my question is, what do we do about this? Because I believe that this ancient word written to a people very different from us speaks to our current situation in three ways. The first way that I think Isaiah 55 speaks to us is an invitation to come and receive. Come and receive. When everything else might have let you down this year, God has been faithful throughout it all. And that might be hard to reconcile with the real pain, the real loss, the real frustration that you have experienced this year, but it is true. God's timetable is vastly different than our own, and that can be absolutely backbreaking when, they're amidst, when, they're, when we are in the midst of an incredible tragedy. It's important to note here that God's faithfulness won't always look the way that we think it might or should look like. Um, we might lose a job that we really need. The relationship that we really want may never come. We may lose the relationship that we're in. A family member might get a terrible diagnosis or we might die. God's faithfulness doesn't always mean that everything is always on the up and up, but it does mean that God is there through it all. And real pain, there is an invitation from a God who says, I am there with you in the pain if you will come and choose to receive me. I believe this because the scriptures teach that God is with the brokenhearted, he's with the sick, he's with the poor, the outcast, the oppressed, and any other affliction or terribleness that we might experience, God is there and he's saying, come to me, receive. I have something to say about this. I have something to, to give you in this. And so hear me clearly, church, through it all, I believe there is good right now to receive from God. We know that 2020 has been a mess for many of us, 
but I believe there's also been beauty in it. This year there has been birth. There's been new friendship. There's been peace available to those who would receive it, help for those who would ask for it, mercy for those who need it, and purpose for those who want it, and more. God is here and he's inviting us into something better right now. Like God is not waiting for COVID to, to be over in order to become faithful again. God is faithful through the midst of the difficulty and the tragedy and the hard things that we're going through right now. He's not distant, he's present, he's available, and he's faithful. So come and receive. Second, God's invitation to his feast is to ask us to lay down our ways and to take up God's ways. So take up God's ways. God wants our entire lives to be lived in relationship with him. This is seen in God's two big asks, to love God and to love people. Before the exile, God's people thought that they were in good standing with God, so they ignored the prophets that God sent to them, inviting, uh, who were telling them to repent or change their ways or they would end in exile. In disbelief, the people would point to God who dwelled in their temple and they would say, well, but God lives here. Look at our history of tithing. Look at all the religious festivals, all the events that we attend. Look at the ways in which we are doing these things. And by the way, do you know our ancestor is Abraham? But God announced that their hearts were far from them, far from him because of the way that they treated the poor among them. Obedience to God without justice for the, press, the oppressed is an oxymoron. They go hand in hand each time. There is no obedience for the God if it does not mean an act of justice for the oppressed. God invites us to take up his way of life, which includes loving our neighbors and, and all of our neighbors. God is fully aware of our current situation, but the gospel is it's not just our situation, but all of our neighbor's situations as well. And I believe the American church has a lot to learn about this. We often believe the promises of God for ourselves, but we don't consider what those promises might mean for the people around us. God wants us to flourish, but he will not bring about our flourishing at the expense of our neighbors. He just won't do it. This does not seem to compute with some of the narratives that we see all around us, but while Jesus was on the earth, he was constantly upending cultural assumptions all around him. And so church, we've got to ask, what are the assumptions that we hold? What are the ways that we are living that Jesus wants to upend in our lives? Because I believe our self-centeredness is one of the biggest barriers that we face towards loving our neighbors. And love of neighbor must be absolutely central to us, church. And so when we date, do we look at what we can get out of another person? Or do we look at the ways in which we may contribute to their betterment, whether we end up with them or not? As parents, we naturally want the best for our kids. You know, I'm on the beginning of the parent journey. Um, my daughter, Cosette, is eight months old, and I can already see how easy it is to just make all the choices to make her life easier and better and not care about what it costs other people. But I believe the call of the gospel, the call of loving our neighbors, is that when Molly and I parent Cosette, as we look at her, we can't make decisions just on her behalf. We have to look, how does this affect her neighbors? How does this affect our neighbor's kids? Those are important questions for us to ask that are difficult, that we have to wrestle with. For our finances, um, we would be wise to steward our finances, right? Like, it's a good thing. And so I'm not talking about just how we spend our money, but I'm talking about in all aspects, who we hire, how much we pay our employees, our spending habits, our real estate investments, all the ways that we use our money, we need to ask, are we loving our neighbor? I don't have all the answers to this, I promise that. I'm figuring this out as I, as I go, but I do know that second only to the kingdom of God, Jesus talks about money more than anything else in the Gospels. 
So we would be wise to regularly consider how we are loving our neighbors or how we are hurting our neighbors through our financial choices. And one of the primary reasons that God sent his people into exile was their lack of concern for their neighbors. And many of God's accusations included financial elements. This should cause us to pause. There is grace here, but we've eventually got to meet God. We've got to come to him and we've got to lay down our ways and take up his ways of loving our neighbor. Come and receive and be transformed by taking up God's ways. And third, we must trust a faithful God. We trust a faithful God. We trust that Jesus' kingdom will come and he calls us to live in light of that right now. And what the Bible describes about the coming kingdom is exciting. It's something worth looking forward to as the people of God. And I would encourage you to read Revelation 21, one through seven, just to get a glimpse or a starting point into what that looks like. We are right to long for the day when God will make all things right, when God will wipe away all tears and remove all types of pain. However, it is foolish for the church to only point to the coming kingdom without living a life shaped by the kingdom. Oftentimes when Jesus healed in the gospels, he said, the kingdom of God is at hand. It's close, it's nearby, you can reach out and touch it. Church, we are called to take up God's way of life and that means trusting that God's kingdom is where all things will end up, so we're gonna live that way right now. So if the kingdom values healing, we value healing. We mourn violence and everything that contributes to violence. When the kingdom values God's creation, so we value God's creation and all of its inhabitants, especially those who, bury, who bear the image of God, humanity. And church, this should separate, like our value of life and of dignity and the image of God and all people should separate us for the rest, from the rest of the world. We should be leading the charge in human dignity. But sadly, I don't have to tell you that we're not known for that. We have the benefit of knowing what the kingdom consists of all that Jesus lived, all that Jesus taught, everything about the coming kingdom. And we live a life of trust, saying if that's the way that life is going to be, we start living like that right now, church. That's the invitation. We witness to the coming kingdom through the actions of our lives, and this is trust. When our lives are shaped by our trust that God's faithfulness to bring about exactly what he said. So we come and receive, we take up God's ways, and we trust a faithful God. 2020 has been hard for every single one of us on some level, but in reality, this, the, the hard news is that it could get worse. You know, it, it, hopefully it's gonna get better, but circumstances change, life happens, like sin is a part of our world, evil is a part of our world. But through it all, while circumstances change, God does not. God is faithful. Church, we are invited to live as if God is as faithful as the Bible claims that he is. He partners with those who come to his feast and he gives them a role right now to play here on the earth with him. Those who say yes to God get to experience the good things of God in the future, but they also get to experience God right now. It is a better way of life than anything else out there. So for those of you who don't follow Jesus, my invitation for you this morning is one that Jesus gave to potential followers in the gospels. It's come and see. Look at the life of Jesus. Look at the life of the church. Are we living a life that's better than the one that's offered in any other circumstances? And I, I encourage you, look at what Jesus taught, look at what he cared about, ask questions to the church. We need to be asked those questions. We need to be convicted if we're not living in a way that's better. We need to know that. That needs to be apparent. So ask questions if you're not a follower of Jesus and see where that leads. For those of us who are followers of Jesus, my word to you this morning is that God is faithful. 
no matter what circumstance is happening in your life, no matter how much you're suffering, that God is with you in the pain. He's there. His invitation is to come and receive. He is preparing something for you. If you're convicted by any of this this morning, like I am, I, I don't want this to promote shame. This is an invitation from God. He's, God never says, hey, fix all of your financial issues or fix your sexuality or fix your beliefs in these things. He says, come to me and I will show you my ways. I will transform your life. Like that's the gospel. It's not get your stuff together. It's come to God and God will do the work as we receive, as we lay down our ways and take up God's ways. So receive this words of hope and of God's faithfulness. And so in just a moment, we're gonna take communion and I've got an individual question for us to take and share around the Lord's table. And then I've got a communal question. The individual one, as you take communion, as you come to the table, is this. How has God been faithful to you at your worst? Praise God and thank Him. Spend time thanking Him for His grace. And after you've done that, as you're taking communion, talk together if you're gathered with any other people and ask this question. How is God inviting us to receive and take up His ways? How might God be inviting us to receive and take up his ways? Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you that this is not just a chance that this is correct, but God, this is from you. Like that your word in Isaiah 55 speaks to us. God, may we come to you with our pain, with our frustration, with our apathy, with our brokenness. Whatever it is, Lord, may we come to you and receive from you and trust that you're the one that offers a better way. You're the one that heals all wounds. And so God, as we come to the table of grace and communion, may we be struck with the reality that your solution was not to run away from us. Your solution was to come all the way in, to take on flesh, to meet us, to offer your body so God, as we take communion, may we celebrate the ways that you have been faithful to us at our worst, and may we be invited deeper into your kingdom. We trust you, Lord. We love you. It's in your near name we pray. Amen.